This is it, everyone. This is it. This is the final sermon in our fall sermon series called Doubt. We have reached this final doubt. Uh, after this, there will be no more doubts, right? No, but it's been quite the series. And, and my honest prayer and hope, and, and as a staff, as pastors in this church, we've been praying for you. We've been so encouraged uh, with some of the fruit that's come from, from talking about these things this fall. And I, I really sincerely hope and pray that God's used uh, us addressing these doubts in your life. I, I really, really pray for that. We're concluding our series by asking this question this morning, is church even important? And the very first thing I want to do is review uh, where we've been in the series, because as we look back at every week in this series, I think it helps um, frame the question, is church even important for us? Let me, let me show you what I mean. We started this series by saying that everybody doubts and also talked about the fact that church doesn't always feel like a safe place to have doubts. And so where that hasn't been the case for you, where that hasn't been the case, where it hasn't felt like a safe place to not have it all together, it can lead to asking the question, is church even important? Then we talked about the reality of evil and suffering in the world and acknowledged that sometimes it feels like Jesus doesn't care. And sometimes it feels like the church hasn't cared well for us as we've suffered. And so those experiences can harden our hearts towards Jesus, and they can also harden our hearts towards the church, leading us to question, is church even important? We talked about the relationship of science and the Bible and this narrative we're being told that those are mutually exclusive categories that no thinking person would believe the Bible. So we question the role of faith and church in our lives. We're aware that there are many religions in the world. And so when Jesus feels distant, life is overwhelming us and church feels like a duty and not a delight. We wonder if Christianity is really just one of many paths to God at best or just another fairy tale at worst. The injustices in church history can make us very uncomfortable and make us untrusting of the church as an institution. And finally, we talked about hypocrisy. And I'm nearly certain that you or someone you know has had a negative experience in the church. And if you haven't had a negative experience in the church, it's probably because you just haven't been in church long enough yet. <laughs> because the reality, we talked about this over and over again in the series, we have this infinite God, and then we have these finite people striving to follow Jesus. We have this sinless Savior, and then we have churches full of sinners. And so the way it works out constantly is we're fumbling the ball, even while trying to follow faithfully, right? There's so much tension in all of that. And so it's no wonder that the sixth leading doubt in the data we've been using to shape this series is this. Is church even important? I want to acknowledge that church can be tough for all the reasons I just listed, not to mention that it can feel stuffy, straight-laced, and slightly boring at times. But listen, like, I can't preach to you guys every week, right? So sometimes it's just going <laughs> to... Yeah. 
Households, uh, we did a little more data research. I had some of our team look in. We have a children's check-in system over there, and I have to confess to you, I used it against you this week. Uh, I got them to look at our, because we can see our households that, that come to our church, and we can see how often our kids are checked in at church. And so by using that data, now our young families are in a hectic stage of life, and I just say, bless you, bless you, I understand, and this is not an indictment, but I actually think it is probably a realistic reflection of our church attendance in general. And what we discovered is that the households at Central average attend, average, on average attend slightly less than two times a month. The people who call Central home on average, attend slightly less than twice a month. Here's what that means. We have roughly 1,100 people that meet at Central across our campuses on a typical Sunday morning, but those who, ca- who consider Central their home church are well over 2,000. Like, times are changing. I remember going early to church as a kid because my mom played the piano, and we'd stay for both, so we'd go early, we'd stay for both services, and then we'd go home, and then we'd come back for evening service, Right? And, and I, I, I loved those days, right, when the pastor, he wore the full suit on the Sunday morning, but just to keep things casual in the evening, no tie at night, you know? <laughs> or, you don't want to get too risky, he would not wear the blazer, but still wear the tie. It's one or the other. You only take, it's only one less of the other. You can't do multiples. Heaven forbid you wear a Canadian tuxedo when you preach. That is an abomination, Right? <laughs> Uh, turns out, you know, with all that church attendance, going early, staying for the two services, going back at night, turns out therapy is expensive, and that was expensive, that, you know, that was excessive for me. No. No, here's what, this, here's what this means. The data, right, that as a church family, we attend slightly less than twice a month, what that actually, the answer to the question this morning for us is, um, church is kind of, sort of important. This is where it feels awkward, but this is what the data says. At Central, church is kind of, sort of important. Carrie Neoff uh, wrote about why even committed church attenders are attending less often these days, and I think it's really helpful to see all of these moving parts that are going on um, that affect um, who we are as the church and, and affect our answers to these questions. He, he pours in a lot of different factors. One of them is this, that there's greater affluence. Canada, Canada has never had more disposable income at any time. It's at an all-time high for Canadians, disposable income. And so with affluence brings options. And so what that's doing is it's moving people further from committed engagement to the mission of the local church. Another factor is higher focus on kids' activities. What's being seen is a growing number of kids are playing sports, and they're playing on teams that require weekend games and travel. In addition to that, more travel in general is taking place in Canada for business and for pleasure. More are traveling, and what typically happens is church attendance doesn't happen when you're out of town. In addition to that, another factor is a blended and single parent families. This is a reality with, with recent decades, the climb of separations and divorce. Uh, it's grown over the past few decades. So, so naturally, with shared custody of kids, perfect church attendance could mean 26 Sundays out of the year. Right? The dynamics are so different today. Add on to that online options. Remember there used to be in church, if you've been in church for decades, you remember the the era of the tape ministry? 
right? Where four cassettes are given out of the sermon from the week before. We live in different times than that. From church services online to sermon podcasts, this new phenomenon has impacted physical participation in the local church. In addition to that, the cultural disappearance of guilt. This fascinates me. A couple decades ago, people used to feel guilty if they missed church. But the number of people who feel guilty about not being at church is shrieking, uh, shrieking, shrinking by the Sunday. In addition, self-directed spirituality. Let me explain that. We live in an era where no one goes to the doctor without first Googling their symptoms, right? You do this and usually self-diagnosing yourself as well. You just show up at the doctor and say, I have this, I Googled it, this is the prescription I need. I'm just here for the, you know, it's like, because we've self-diagnosed ourselves. I actually have a doctor friend and I gave him a framed picture and on it it says, please don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. I suggested he put it in his entry. I don't know what he did with it. That's up to him to decide. But in an age where we have access to everything, more and more people are self-directing their spirituality. For better or worse, more people are self-directing their spirituality. Finally, he looks at the factor of failure to see a direct benefit. People always make time for what they value most. People always make time for what they value most. So if they're not making time for church, it's telling. If people don't come Often, it's because they don't see a direct benefit. Now, when I read that, there's like a gut check for me. And I actually think there should be a gut check for leaders in the church. If there is not a direct connection to actually church attendance um, is a priority because I, I see its benefit. I, I see benefits galore. And if that's void and we think, ah, oh, church doesn't really matter because I don't really miss anything. I think there's a gut check that needs to happen there. It can also be because there are sometimes more subversive uh, benefits that we don't always think. I didn't feel much at church today, so therefore it doesn't matter. You know, there can be these unperceived benefits as well that are actually happening there. Now, I actually think that part of the reason that we think church is kind of, sort of important is because there's confusion about what church is. And whenever there's confusion about what church is, if we get the question wrong, we'll typically get the answer wrong. And since there's confusion about what church is, I believe, it, it's natural then that it would become a low priority, which I think it has. So let's spend some time clarifying what church is. My favorite way to de describe what a church is or what something is, is first talking about what it is not. So let's talk about what a church is not. Firstly, a church is not a building. As, as a church central, we have three buildings. We have this one, we have one in Harrison, we have one in Lake Iraq, we rent a couple others in Agassi and up a promontory. Buildings are great. Buildings are resources for ministry, but buildings aren't churches. Secondly, the church is not solitude in nature. That, is, that can be beautiful, that can be time with God, but, but that walk or that hike is not church. Church is not listening to a sermon podcast. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing, it can be a good thing. Typically is a good thing. But listening to a sermon podcast is not church. The church is not a group of friends getting together to talk about Jesus. That's a great thing, that's a beautiful thing. It isn't church. Where two or three are gathered isn't actually church. The text in Matthew's gospel that that's about is actually rendering decisions regarding restoration processes so someone can 
kind of be healthy again in a local church, but two or three gathered is not church. The text is actually saying the opposite of what we actually typically define it as. And finally, a church is not a parachurch ministry. World vision is phenomenal. Power to change is great. Cyrus Center is a beautiful ministry in our community, but it's not a church. They're not churches. So what is a church? Well, the the word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means an assembly or called out ones. So the root meaning of church is not that of a building, but of a people. According to the Bible, the church is the body of Christ. It's all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. In this regard, the Bible speaks about the, what we sometimes call the universal church, all believers for all time. The Bible also defines the church as local congregations, right? Kind of break it down. Yes, there are churches across the globe, or there, there are Christians across the globe. That's a universal church, but that works itself out into local churches around the globe. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to 1 Timothy 3. We're going to look at one verse, verse 15. It's near the end of the Bible. We're going to show the verse on the screen as well. I think that we actually have more to say about the church than simply these things. And I love what this text tells us. 1 Timothy 3, I'll start it at the end of verse 14. It says, I'm writing these things. That's the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy, who's a young pastor in the city of Ephesus, and he tells him why he's writing the letter. I am writing, writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. Three phenomenal descriptors there of what the church is. So we're going to dive into that. Let's look at the first. The church is important because it is the expression of God's family. So, well, the marks of the church, sometimes the marks of the church church are talked about. And what those are, are the word of God rightly preached and the sacraments or ordinances rightly administered. Communion, the Lord's Supper, those are the ordinances of our church. Those are the, those are the uh, marks of a church. A, a, so that's why all these things aren't what I just said they are. They are where the word of God is rightly preached and where the sacraments are administered. But that's just a little, it's, it's not really rounded enough yet. It doesn't, it doesn't really speak enough about what the church is. So sometimes in addition to the marks of the church, we talk about the mission of the church and why we exist and what we're to do. We also talk about the nature of the church. And when it comes to the nature of the church, I don't think there's a more beautiful analogy in the Bible than the fact that the church is a family. It's literally the family of God. So what that means is we are God's household. We are his family. God is our father. We are his children. And that makes us siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. So when he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, Paul's letting us know we're to operate under God's rules and God's direction. He's the father. He's the head of this household, and he is calling us to live in it in a particular way. But we don't want to miss the big picture. That means we're family. The church is a family. This means, I don't know if this makes you uncomfortable or not, but this means that we are in an eternal relationship. In other words, you can't get rid of me. (laughs) You're stuck with me. We're stuck with each other, 
right? In heaven, we'll dwell with the redeemed, perfected family of God forever. The Christian life is a life of slow growth into Christ-likeness, slowly becoming our true selves, the perfected selves that Jesus will one day make us into. So here's the question. If you are becoming more like Christ, here's the question I want to ask about this. Are you becoming more and more like family with your church? Because what God's doing in your life is he's working in you in such a way that he's making you more Christ-like. So here's a really practical question when it comes to the church. Do you find in your life that you are becoming more and more like family with your church? That's the work God wants to do in you as it pertains to the church. Now, I get it. I get it. Like every family has a weird uncle, right? Some of you are like, wait a minute. No, no, we don't. That means you're the weird uncle. <laughs> Actually, as I reflect on my family, I, oh, no, ah. I totally am the weird uncle. There's this family dynamics. It's not all bliss. It's not all perfect. It's not all easy. And God knows that. And he still uses the analogy for family. Why? Because that's what we are. We have a strong bond of being brothers and sisters in Christ. Can I articulate this question? Is church even important? I actually think when it comes out of our mouths, we're actually saying something slightly different underneath it. And here's what I think a lot of us are actually saying. When we ask the question, we're actually subliminally asking, is it really important that I go to that Christian lecture with all those people I don't know? I think that's the question we often ask. Does it really matter if I go to that Christian lecture with all those people I don't know? It's easy to answer, no because I can listen to the podcast. Therefore, I still get the information. And I don't really know those people, so they're not even going to miss me. But see, we've asked the wrong question. We've interpreted it the wrong way. We are not merely called to go to a place where we get information. We are called to be a family with one another. We are not called to be among people we don't know at all that are strangers. We are called to be a family. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about the large gathering, and they didn't all know each other really well, but they also met in homes during the week. The small gathering, they knew each other really well. They shared life. They shared faith. They walked with one another. So it, what follows when we ask the wrong question is we start to ask other questions like, look, if I'm not entertained, why go? Or if I'm just supposed to sit there and I'm just a number, why does it matter? But all of those are misinterpretations of what the church is. See, when the church becomes a place to go and consume something instead of a people to join and contribute something, Christians only see their absence on Sundays affecting them. Krish Kandia wrote in a Christianity Today article called Church is a Family, Not an Event. And I'm going to read an extended portion of it for us. So buckle up. Philosopher Donald Schoen coined the term generative metaphor. Isn't this exciting? Aren't you pumped? Generative metaphor. But here's, I think it actually is fascinating. He coined the term to describe how mental images affect the way we approach problems. For example, if a company is described as fragmented, then a new manager may seek integrative solutions. Whereas if it is described as multifaceted, then they may actively pursue diversity. Descriptors, metaphors, and conceptual models can have a profound effect on both how we understand something and how we act. When church is understood as an event, 
it makes sense to bring event management techniques to bear on the strategies, streamlining processes, processes to maximize attendance, encourage repeat visitation, and increase visitor satisfaction. It is no wonder those have become key success metrics, even though they bear no resemblance to the way successful churches are presented in the New Testament. What would happen if, instead of a flawed, sub-biblical overemphasis on the church as an event where religious goods are dispersed in a transactional arrangement, we were to adopt the generative biblical metaphor of the church as family, that is, the household of God as the primary influence of our conception and practice of church. Church as family is not a new metaphor. However, our understanding of church as family may have become so restricted, limited, and skewed that it needs an urgent rethink. This particularly struck home to me when I was in Kenya listening to a Christian from the north of the country give his testimony. This man became a Christian from a strongly Muslim background, was thrown out of his family, and was ultimately forced to flee for his life. He sought sanctuary in a church that welcomed him with open arms. They gave him a corner of the building to live in, with a mattress on the floor and food generously delivered on a daily basis. The man was extremely grateful for their hospitality, but he confided. The hardest part of his week was on Sunday morning after the church service, when everyone went home to their families and their Sunday lunches, leaving him alone. Although he was welcome to make his home inside the church building, he did not actually feel welcome inside the homes of the church family. This church was so near and yet so far from Christ-like hospitality, he writes. The church building provided shelter, the church members provided sustenance, and the church event provided sacraments and spiritual teaching, but none of these were a substitute for the lifelong intimate commitment of a family. I believe, he goes on, Bible teaching and sacraments are an important part of church life in the same way that graduation ceremonies and school plays are an important part of family life. But if I only turned up for those events in my child's lives, you would wonder what kind of parent I was. If I were to define parenting as remembering to turn up for and photograph my child's sports day, piano recital, and birthday party, you would probably argue I had a reductionist and limited understanding of parenting. In the same way, we misunderstand what God intended by church if we only turn up to Sunday services, Bible studies, and prayer meetings and exclude the Bible's clear teaching of the family responsibility that teaches members to have love for one another, carry each other's burdens, encourage one another, and spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Paul's use of a familial language to describe the relationships between Christians in the church community echoes Jesus' own approach. Famously, once when Jesus was teaching and his biological mother and brother were outside waiting to speak to him, he corrected his disciples stating that his family members were, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. According to Jesus, those who convert to Christianity at great relational cost will receive many times more brothers, sisters, parents, and children in this present age. But how is that the case? How does that happen in the church? 
Well, it is through the alternative family of the church that we receive relationships that can act as a substitute for those that we have lost. He concludes by saying, these are mind-blowing ideas. And indeed, the generative metaphor of the church as family has always had explosive consequences on how Christians understand their place in the world. Church as family. Remember, you're not a passive spectator on the sidelines, but an active participant in the family of God. What does that mean? It means that we are to identify how each one of us can plug in and be known and contribute to the family. Here's the thing, like I already mentioned, sometimes family is hard. Sometimes church is hard. But when we act like family with one another, You know what happens with the singles among us, the lonely among us, the suffering among us? Our greatest challenge becomes our greatest opportunity. And what is that? To love like the deepest of family, to support one another with a tenacious commitment because we have the deepest bond imaginable. We share Jesus in common. We're family. Second thing we see from the text is the church is important because it is the dwelling place of God's presence. We see that when the term is used, the church of the living God. Here's essentially what that's saying. It's in the gathering of the church where God most clearly manifests his presence. The term the living God was used in the Old Testament in a number of spaces to emphasize the deadness of idols. They would refer to the living God, emphasizing the deadness of idols. It was also a popular designation in the New Testament, like it is here for God, where it emphasizes his eternal and immortal characteristics. But when a first century Jew would have heard this term, the living God, It would have taken them back to Jacob's meeting with God at Bethel, which literally means house of God, where Jacob saw a stairway to heaven. Great song, right? Jacob saw a stairway to heaven and exclaimed, surely the Lord is in this place. What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. But not only that, a first century Jew would have thought back to God's instructions to Moses. We see it in Exodus 20 regarding the building, 25, where where Moses uh, is instructed to build the tabernacle and God says they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. The first century Jews would have thought back when they heard this term, the living God, to the temple built by Solomon, right? Where God chose to dwell, to manifest his presence to his people in a particular location. But a change takes place in the New Testament. A very distinct change takes place in the New Testament. No special city, no tabernacle, no temple where God dwells. Instead, God now dwells with and in his people. This is something we believe about Christianity. If you're exploring Christianity, we believe that when you surrender your life to Christ, when you confess Jesus, right? When you come to Christ, as it were, we believe that God dwells inside of you. The spirit of God lives inside of you and changes your life from the inside out. This is significant 
right? Instead, now what's happening in the New Testament, we see that God now dwells with his people. That's why Paul says to the church in Corinth, we are the sanctuary of the living God. That's why Paul says to the church in Ephesus, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. What an awesome thing. And because God dwells in us, when we come together, it's as the church of the living God. The church gathered individually indwelt by the spirit make up the dynamic assembly of the living God. And in this context, God does significant spiritual ministry among us. Kent Hughes boils it down this way. Here's how this works, he says. Listening to the word of God alone is a good thing. And singing to God alone is also a good thing. But singing to God together and hearing his word preached together is better. Our hearing and singing intensify when we are with brothers and sisters whom God, in whom all God also dwells. Have you found that to be true? Martin Luther put it this way a little more starkly. He says, at home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. This is exactly why the word of God is adamant that the people of God meet together. No substitutes. Our poor interpretations and applications of church won't do. Right? It's not just information, listening to a sermon podcast. It's not just singing worship songs, putting on a worship album. These miss the point of the dynamic work God wants to do in and through you in the gathering, in the large gathering, in the small gathering, Sundays and midweek. That's why in Hebrews 10, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. Can I tell you the context of this book this letter to the Hebrews, it was written at, at the time that, uh, the, of the Roman emperor Nero, who was persecuting Christians. He would grab Christians and he would put them in the Colosseum where wild beasts, it would be a spectacle and entertainment, would, would rip apart Christians in the Colosseum. This was a time when the Roman emperor Nero would grab Christians and drive them through a stake and light them on fire so they could be lampstands, lanterns in his garden. And then the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, don't give up meeting together as is the habit of some. Why? Because they were being persecuted, right? They were burned as lanterns. They were ripped apart in the Colosseum. Their kid had T-ball at 10 a.m. And it's like, which service do we go to? I don't think we can make either, right? These, are, these were the tensions for the early church, okay. Got too real, got too real. But he's not only saying that. He's not just don't give up meeting together. He, do you hear what he's also saying? Because you need to be thinking about stirring one another up. You need to be thinking about how I'm going to encourage each other. And how do we do that if we don't meet? That's the task of the church. We must go about that. And I love how real it is because he's like, go, not because you feel like it, but because you should go expecting to stir others up and encourage others. And you should go expecting to be stirred up and be encouraged by others. Francis Chan put it this way, church has to be less like going to the movies and more like going to the gym. I know all about going to the movies. I know very little about going to the gym, but I think I understand what he's saying. He's saying when it comes to church, you're not a, you're not a spectator. That's not how church works. 
That's not how Christians approach church as spectators. It's not like the movies. It's like the gym. Well, what happens at the gym? Work out. The church is where we work out our faith. The church is actually where all the one another's in the New Testament get fleshed out. Pray for each other. Encourage one another. Have faith discussions. Sharpen one another. Equip each other. Serve in the community with one another. Help one another become disciples of Jesus and to love one another. Someone my wife and I know refers to church as like a gas station. Because in the missional mindset of I am a sent out one, there's also the gathering of the church where we are refueled with the truth, refueled with the encouragement, refueled in the corporate singing and the praying and the interactions that we have. That is the fuel that then sends us out with boldness and fresh courage. It's in the context that these things take place. See, the church, the corporate body of Jesus' followers is the place where God lives and dwells and manifests his presence. Consider how significant that makes our weekly gatherings. The church gathers and Jesus is among us. It's an awesome privilege to be the dwelling place of God's presence. Because God most clearly manifests his presence in the church, my role is not as a passive spectator, but as an active participant. Why? Because God has a work to do in me and through me this Sunday. God wants to pour into me today, and he wants me to pour into others today. We should come to church expectant that God is going to do a work in us and use us to do a work in others. What would it look like if on our way to church every Sunday, we just ask ourselves the question, Lord, I'm expectant. What do you want to do in me today? And what do you want to do through me today as we exit our cars and walk into the church? I wonder what that would look like. We work through in our baptism ministry partnership uh, class a few things, where, four things that I talk about that, where your participation in the life of the local church, uh, where all of these benefits come flooding in when you engage and commit and participate routinely. One of them is just the reality that it's for the good of others. So when you're a part of a church and others are in weekly, routinely, pouring into you, invested, right, engaged, that's for your good. You're blessed by that. But of course, the second reason then is that it's for your own good. Because when others are engaged like that, you're not only doing good in their lives, they're doing good in your lives. In addition to that, a third reason that your commitment and participation in the local church is absolutely important is that it's for the good of your leaders. Now, most people care little about this. I care about this a great deal. It is so for the good of your leaders that you participate in an engaged way in the life of the church. You know why? Because there's a command given in scripture to pastors and elders, and you know what it is? Shepherd the flock among you. So here's a, here's, here's a practical question. Who's that? Who is the flock among the elders and pastors of this church that we are to shepherd? Is it every Christian in the Eastern Fraser Valley? Is it anyone who's come to Central once? Is it anybody who's becoming, been coming for a year? Like they go over that threshold and, and we become aware they've been here for a year. Are they the flock that we are to shepherd and we're responsible for that we will give an account before God for? Or is it, is it somebody who's introduced themselves to the pastor one Sunday? Now they're a part of the flock. Is that what it is? We just need to get really practical. There's a way that this has to flesh itself out for us. We call that ministry partnership. When you say, I, I need to become a ministry partner, because in that scenario, what's happening is this. It's a hand in the air that says, I'm in. I'm all in. 
This is my church. This is my family. This is where I'm being served and where I am serving. This is where I am giving and I'm being fed. All of these things going on. So it's for the good of leaders. It's also for the good of those outside of the church. See, when we're routinely committed to participation in the church, where God most clearly manifests his presence, it's a commitment that makes a powerful statement in a low commitment culture. Here's the reality. Cell phone contracts, sports beer leagues, and Costco require more of their members than our churches typically do. And you're like, yeah, but the sports beer league's pretty fun, right? (laughs) In the midst of a consumer culture tailored to meet individual felt needs and preferences, your committed participation among a community of people make a counter-cultural statement. Your casual adherence is typical of our society. Your radical commitment is a stunning counterculture. The question is, are we in? Because if we are, when we are, that kind of contrasting community shines a bright light on the gospel to the watching world. Here's the final thing we glean from the text. Church is important because it is the guardian of God's word. That shakes down in a couple of ways. It's referred to in the text as a pillar and buttress of the truth. I'm sure all of you know what a pillar is. I'm not sure everybody knows what a buttress is, so we'll show you. It's an architectural structure built against or projecting from a wall which serves to support or reinforce the wall. Buttresses are fairly common on more ancient buildings as a means of providing support. So here's what we know. Well, the truth uh, comes from God, right? All truth is God's truth. God's the source of truth. The church, what this text is saying, when it's faithful to God's word, is a pillar and buttress of God's truth in the world. That shakes down in two ways. First, the church has the privilege and responsibility of preserving the gospel, meaning the church hold it firm. In every age, in every generation, in every setting, we have the responsibility of passing his word on, holding it fast, and defending it against false teaching that would threaten it from the first century to the 21st century. That's why in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he writes this to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Here's the first thing that this pillar and buttress of the truth statement means about the church. The church is tasked with holding the truth of God's word firm. Here's the second thing it's indicating. The church bears the mission of Jesus in proclaiming the gospel. We hold it high. We hold the gospel firm and we hold it high. Like the columns of Greco-Roman architecture of their day, we lift high the truth of the word. We want his word to shine so that the world will see and hear and know the gospel. So as a church, what do we hold high? One thing the good news, the truth, the gospel. We magnify it, we amplify it, we shine a spotlight on it in the church and all over the world. If we were to conclude, though, that church isn't important, the way it shakes down is this. The majority of the New Testament doesn't make sense anymore. 
because it doesn't make sense outside of the context of local church family. That's where various gifts come together to bless and build one another up, where baptism and the Lord's Supper are meant to be administered, where leaders are called out and held accountable according to the qualifications written for local church leaders, and where members of the congregation are protected and fed and matured and held accountable and loved. You cannot read the New Testament and not see that to come to Christ has always been synonymous with becoming a church member who is known and loved and gifted and called and participating. Charles Spurgeon preached it this way, I believe that every Christian ought to be joined to some visible church. That is his plain duty, according to scripture. God's people are not dogs, else they might go about one by one, but they're sheep and therefore they should be in flocks. Now, I know there are some who say, well, I hope I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to any church because now why not, Spurgeon interjects, because I can be a Christian without it. Spurgeon responds to that. Now, are you quite clear upon that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient? Well, suppose everybody else did the same. Suppose all Christians in the world said, I shall not join the church. Why, there would be no visible church. There would be no ordinances. That would be a very bad thing. And yet one doing it, what is right for one is right for all. Why should not all of us do it? Then you believe that if you were to do an act which has a tendency to destroy the visible church of God, you would be as good a Christian as if you did your best to build up that church? I do not believe it, sir. Nor do you either. That's Spurge for you. That's the Spurge dropping truths. Seven years ago now, some of you were here, some of you weren't, so I'll fill the rest of you in. Seven years ago now, um, I was an associate pastor in this church and stepped out of vocational ministry for a season, and I didn't know how long that would be. And it was because at that point, at that stage, I was unqualified to be a pastor because of something in my life that rhymes with bin. And it wasn't gin. It had nothing to do with gin, actually. <laughs> it had to do with sin. And as that was shaking down, do you want to know what the hardest Sunday to go to church was for me? The next one. It's like the hardest. It was that moment of, I don't know if I'll be in ministry anymore. And that moment of, man, what, what do I think about the church? There happened to be someone in my house who, who lives in my house who also strongly encouraged me to go. But it was that next week, and it was going that next week, that hardest week in my life to ever go to church. That It was in going that next week week where I was, I was, I recalled this is what my life is all about. Like I want to be like Christ and that's, that's going to be formed here. I don't want to run from my sin. I want to address my sin and that's going to get done here. I want to grow in godliness and I have to address that here. And I have been confronted by godly people in this church that want to call me to pursue Christ. And I need that here. And so we went that next Sunday, that hardest Sunday of my life to ever go to church. And I remember who sat in front of us. And I remember after the service, them turning around, just loving us. 
I remember who was working at the coffee station, right? The most sacred role in our church, right? <laughs> working the coffee station. I not only remember who was there, but I remember what they said to me and I counted as prophetic in my life. The words of blessing they spoke to me. Like, I, I just want to grip you all and say, you need this more than you know. Look, I want to be a part of a movement. I want to be a part of the movement that Jesus established. And you know what that is? It's one movement. It's the church in the world. And I don't always feel like showing up. Some weeks I love it. Some weeks it's hard, but I know it's good for me. Just as the gym, I hear, is good for our physical bodies, church is good for our spiritual lives. We don't always treat each other like family, but listen to me. I want to be a part of a church family, and I want to strive to be that with you. And we're not all going to experience every week powerful manifestations of God in our midst every Sunday, but I want to come to church every week expectant that God is going to pour into me through the gathering and expectant that God is going to use me to pour into others in some way. And not every sermon is going to transform your life. We all know this. Not every song is going to stir your affections for Christ and not every foyer conversation is going to build you up in the faith. But I want to be in awe being radically centered on the gospel with you and rooted in the Bible with you. So what do you say? Let's be family. Let's gather weekly in God's presence and let's hold the gospel firm. Let's hold it high and let's hold it out together. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we love you and you are training us to love your church. God, I just pray over us that you would do a work among us, a healing work among us, because many of us, if not all of us, have been hurt in, by, in some way by the church. Jesus, I pray a healing among us. Jesus, I pray for courage among us. I pray for discipline among us. I pray for those weeks where it's the last thing we want to do and that you would give us fresh motivation that we would not give up meeting together as is the habit of some, but Lord, that we would invest ourselves all the more into being family, into being expectant that you are gonna move in power among us and recognize that what we have in common in the gospel is the most important thing on the planet and nothing binds us like that. Oh, Jesus, would you powerfully work the gospel in and through us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.